him. Uh, I'm going to continue in this sermon series on the Ten Commandments today, and uh, I'm really enjoying the Ten Commandments. Of course, I missed two of the commandments, and uh, Pastor Tommy and Pastor Micah preached those two commandments for me while I was on my vacation, and, uh, but we'll continue in these today. And one of the things that I, uh, I like about the Ten Commandments, you may have seen the way that it's divided. It's kind of intuitively divided into, in, in, really into two parts. You have the first four commandments that are directly related to how we interact with God. Uh, Worship the Lord only. Don't have a graven image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These four commands, these, these first four commands, all are concerning with how we relate directly to God. But the final six commandments have to do with how we relate to each other. So don't steal from one another, don't lie about one another, bear false witness about one another, don't be jealous of one another. These are, these are kind of the foundation for a lot of the one another's of Scripture that we see fleshed out in the New Testament. But out of these final six commandments that talk about how we're to interact with each other, there are two of these commandments that are directly related to the family unit. One of them, uh, Pastor Micah preached uh, several weeks ago, honor thy father and thy mother. By the way, this is, the, this is the, really the only exclusive like, command that is like, really targeted uh, towards kids. So kids, you kind of have to pay attention to that one, right? Um, but uh, Micah preached that. That's related to how, how, uh, how kids and parents uh, interact with each other. The commandment that we're going to look at today has to do with what I consider to be and what I believe the Bible teaches the most most important relationship in this life, and that is the relationship between husband and between wives. Uh, it is the most important relationship, and, and personally, I believe that the relationship between husband and wife is the relationship that God cares about most for us in this life. I mean, if you think about it, all of our relationships really are a reflection of or emanate uh, from how we relate to our spouse, or, I mean, they, they, they kind of, they, they, they kind of go, to, go together. So because of this, we have to ask ourselves, well, what are God's expectations for my marriage? What are God's expectations for how I relate to this person that God has put me with? And, this, and how do I relate to this person? Because I know God has given commandments. He's watching. So how, 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 do, how do I fulfill those obligations? Well, Scripture says a lot about this relationship. If you think about, and we're going to look at some of these passages today, if you think about Genesis 2, um, Exodus 20, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and Ephesians 5, those, those five uh, clumps of Scripture, and some of them are only one verse, uh, really give you a full snapshot of God's expectation for how you relate to your spouse. And we can't look at all of that today, but what we are going to look at today, we're going to look at the baseline foundational expectation, biblical marriage 101. That's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to talk about today. And it is summarized in five simple words in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, which you and I commonly refer to as the seventh commandment. 
And the seventh commandment is simply this. You shall not commit adultery. This is the this is just the foundational baseline expectation of it, it just it just doesn't get much more simpler than this and what God expects of us. This is minimum standard. This is minimum standard for what God expects for our relationships. In fact, it's it's really the foundational principle for sexual purity in general, but it's also a lot more than that. Here's the main point of my sermon as I talk about Exodus this seventh commandment from Exodus chapter 20, but I'm also going to see how it's mirrored in other parts of scripture and also bring in some other concepts from other parts of scripture. Here's here's my main point, and that is God's basic standard of marriage is one man, one woman, and that's pretty important. You didn't think you didn't really think you'd have to emphasize that marriage is between a man and a woman 20 years ago, but now that's important. One man, one woman in a faithful and committed relationship for life. And that's why the title of this message today is Faithful and Committed. That is God's basic uh, expectation, God's basic standard, one man, one woman for life in a faithful and committed, exclusive relationship. That's, that's what God wants. He wants our marriages to be permanent. He wants them to be exclusive. And what, what does that mean? Faithfulness basically means that there is a physical and there is an emotional relationship that happens between you and your spouse that is not true of any other relationship in your life. That's what faithfulness is. Faithful means there is, there is something that you and your spouse do physically. There is a bond that you and your spouse have emotionally that is not true about any other human being. And commitment means that, that w- it will never be true about anyone else except for that one person that you're married to. That's what commitment means. Commitment means that the physical relationship and the emotional bond that you have will be that way until one of you dies. It can never, ever end. This, this is it just doesn't get much it does it can't get much more simple than this when we talk about god's basic standard and expectation for marriage everything else about marriage is is flows out of and is an outgrowth of that and this has been god's standard from the very beginning Culture is redefining this. Culture has been changing this, um, but it's always been this way. God hasn't changed his mind, and God's not going to change his mind about this. We see this all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, but we can even see this faithfulness and, and commitment, this expectation of a lifetime of faithfulness and commitment. We can see this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, look at these verses in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, through verse 25. These are, these are some good verses. And I mean, y'all, if you've, if you've read your Bibles at all, you're familiar with the story of, of Genesis chapter 1 where God created everything and then Genesis chapter 2 um, where God brought male and female together. And uh, it, it, it went something like this. God created man and he saw him and he said, uh-oh, that boy's not going to make it. That boy needs some help. Somebody needs to help him. And so, and God said, I'm going to do something special. I'm going to do something amazing. 
God engaged in a creative act in which he developed a helpmate for Adam that was especially suited for him. And, you know, I told you this before, but, uh, and I can't remember last time I said this, but, you know, when God created Adam, it's like he just took a dirt, a, like a dirt clod, and he, like, made Adam, right? Made him from the ground. But the Lord took his time when he made woman, and he brought her to the man, and when Adam saw her, he was like, yes! That's what you said whenever you saw your, 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 your wife-to-be, wasn't it, guys? Uh, you know what? Y'all did so much better than the first service. Can I just tell you, the first service almost missed that. And I told them boys, I was like, man, y'all are going to be in trouble at the house. But that's what she said. When you said. When you saw your spouse, when you first saw her, you were like, whoa. And then y'all started dating, and you were like, wow. And then you asked her to be married, and she said yes. And you were like, yes. I mean, it was like, oh, well, that, that's what Adam said when he said, this is bone of my bones and this is flesh of my flesh. He said, there's something special about her. There's something that's going to be true about us that's not going to be true about anyone or anything else in all of creation. And that's whenever we see these words in Scripture. And by the way, Jesus quoted these words whenever he talked about marriage. The apostle Paul quoted these words when he talked about marriage, and he said, therefore a man shall leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. He's going to leave his father and mother. Sorry, moms. He's going to leave his father and mother, and he's going to hold fast. He's going to cleave. He's going to cleave unto his wife, and they are going to become one flesh, not two people in a relationship. That's not, that, that's, there's something so much bigger than that when it comes to marriage. It's not two people in a relationship. That's what you were when you started dating. That's what you were when you, even, even whenever you got engaged. Two people in a relationship can describe just about anything and anyone that you're in a relationship with. More than two people in a relationship, one flesh. This speaks of their physical exclusive relationship, but so much more, a bond emotionally and spiritually and in life that is to never be broken. And the Bible says that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Can I tell you, I don't think this has anything to do with body image. I think this has everything to do with a perfect physical and emotional bliss that they had together because that's the way that God created it but you know what we're good at messing it up aren't we we're so good at messing things up things that God make perfect we're so good at messing it up and that's what Adam and Eve did because of their sin you know the story they sinned against the Lord they ate the fruit that they shouldn't eat and the very first relationship that was affected was their relationship with God God came to walk with them in the cool of the day they go and hide that's the very first relationship that was affected by sin and the second was their relationship with each other they didn't get divorced but the perfection and the bliss that was there was broken. And so this, that, this passage in general, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, and the fall of man, 
it, it begs the question, how do we get back to everything that God wants for us? How do we get restored to Him? And how can we be restored to others? How, how can we live life on this earth the way that God intended for us and get away from all the brokenness that exists around us, whether it be in our marriage or whatever it might be? And the answer to that is through our relationship with Jesus Here's here's probably the most important thing that I'm going to share with you today about marriage. And that is, successful marriage is about discipleship. It's about discipleship. It's not just about your relationship with another person. It is so much bigger than that. We see this from the beginning, how involved God was in the relationship with Adam and Eve. And God hasn't changed how much He wants to be involved in your marriage. Marriage is about discipleship. It's about you being close to Jesus, your spouse being close to Jesus, and y'all honoring Jesus in the way that you relate to each other. You see, y'all, Rob Bass got it wrong when he said it takes two to make a thing go right. He got it wrong. Okay. It doesn't take two. It takes three. It takes three. By the way, I asked our worship pastor, I said, hey, what was the most famous thing that Rob Bass ever said? He said, who's Rob Bass? I said, well, he's not internationally known, but he's known about the microphone. I thought that she would know who he is, but she didn't, and I can't believe it. Your marriage involves you... It involves your spouse, and it involves God. You you take God out of the equation. You remove Him. You remove His standards. You take away your relationship with God. You you somehow remove Him from the relationship. And I'll be honest with you, I don't I don't know I don't know how people I don't know how people stay married. Um. It's so important if when we when we view it this way that marriage is a covenant with God. It's not just a commitment that I make to a human being. Marriage is a covenant with God. And when you view marriage this way, when God is at the center of your relationship, your relationship is so much less likely to fail. Now, the world will tell you, and you'll read stats from different places, and you've heard them before, that says people in the church get divorced at the same rate as people in the world. Actually, that's not true. You can, look, you can look this up. People who are sold out 100% love the Lord. Both spouses love Jesus, love Him, serve Him. They have far less divorce rates than anyone. Conversely, and this is interesting to me, nominal Christians, people who just kind of come to church, but they don't really have a relationship with God. They're just kind of religious, and it's not real. Like, they're not real, like, like spirit-filled, praying, Bible-reading, worshiping, you know, everything that a disciple should be, those people actually have higher divorce rates than the average people in the world. You can look that up. So how do we take this command? How do we look at this? This hedge that the Lord has put around our relationship. When he says in five simple words, he says, do not commit adultery. What does that mean? Three ways that adultery is committed. Three ways. They're very simple. And that is sex outside your marriage, divorce and remarriage, and lustfulness in the heart. Everybody just went, oh man, are we going to talk about that? Well, the world talks about it all the time. I mean, why, why, why shouldn't we? As believers, we need to proactively protect 
our marriages and our relationships from these things. So first, let's talk about sex outside of marriage. Here's another foundational truth for you. God designed sex to be shared between married people only. Parents, you need to teach this to your kids because they're hearing something completely different on social media. They're learning something totally different from the movies that you're allowing them to watch. They're learning something completely different around their friends and out around their schools. It, you need to teach them this. You need to tell them that the only appropriate mechanism for sexual expression is in a permanent covenant marriage. Um, listen, uh, I don't have to tell you that cheating is bad. Even people who don't hold to our standards, people who are not Christians, uh, everybody knows that cheating is, is, is wrong. And what I find with most believers is they don't set out to cheat. It's something that they just kind of fall into. Like they didn't build the fence around the swimming pool and they accidentally, they accidentally fell into it. This is what we see all the time, not just with Christian people, but with, with all sorts of people. And so there's certain things that we need to do to protect ourselves from that. And if you think that you are above it, you are deceiving yourself, male or female. If you think that you are above it, the Bible says, uh, be careful when you think you stand lest you fall. You are not above it. So there's, there's just a book that I'll recommend to you, just some practical things that I think that will help you. It's called Hedges. I've recommended this book to you guys before. Our library actually, uh, actually has this book that you can check out. I accidentally had the library's copy in my office, but I have, uh, I have returned it to the, uh, to the library. And uh, it's very simple. Let me, let me just give you the basics of the book, and I'm not going to go through each one. Uh, you can read the book for yourself. But basically, a hedge is like a barrier that you put around yourself, like I said, like a, like a fence that you build around a swimming pool, um, and you protect your time, your talk, and your touch. You can really think about it in those three categories, your time, your talk, and your touch. So not being alone with someone from the opposite sex, being cautious um, about any type of touching with someone from the, from the, uh, of the opposite sex, uh, being careful about compliments. I mean, if you say to someone, hey, those are nice shoes, totally fine, but you look fantastic in that dress? No, there's only one person that I'm allowed to say that to, and that is the lady that's sitting on the front row. And uh, she often says that she will cut somebody. Uh, and that's, I think that's funny. Um, be careful not to flirt with people that you're not married to, even if you're just joking. Caution about text message, electronic communication, and probably one of the best parts of the book, and I, I think that's really good, it talks about cultivating a dynamic relationship with your spouse where you enjoy each other often. These are just some basic practical things. Go pick up the book. You can read it for yourself. But obviously, cheating is adultery, and it's very damaging. But so is the second one. Let's, let's, uh, let's look at this, this second one. Divorce and remarriage. This is always a touchy subject, and I have to tell you, a lot of the times, most every time, I just feel, I just feel this discomfort. I don't know why, because it seems like that myself and everybody I love and people around me and lot, most everybody in my family... Um, has somehow been touched by divorce or has been divorced. I haven't been divorced, and I hope that never happens. Um, uh, I pray that it never, uh, it never happens. But a lot of people that I love and know and am close to and family members, it's all affected them. Um, and uh, I, I used to feel real awkward. And I think I've, and I still do a little bit, but 
I used to be real shy because, you know, when you preach through something in the Bible, like the Ten Commandments, there's certain things you can't skip, and eventually you hit topics that are uncomfortable to talk about. And I used to be so shy about it, I used to be so apologetic about it, you know, I'm sorry, until previously divorced people would come up to me after the service and they would point their finger in my face and they would say, listen, I've been divorced and don't you shy away from what the Word of God says. You go in there and you tell them what the Bible says now. Don't let them, don't let happen to them what happened to me. You don't be, and I'm like, well, let me tell you what, if I have your permission to be bold, then, uh, uh, then I certainly have God's permission to, to just say what He says. Here's, here's the way we need to view marriage. And I think that part of the problem is that we don't view marriage in this way. We need to view marriage as a covenant that is indissolable. Like you can't dissolve it. It can't, it can't be done away with. Jesus, this was his view of marriage. In Mark chapter 10 verse 9, he, he said, whatever God has joined together, let man not separate. This means to be yoked together. This means that you say, I've got a resolve going into this. I've got a resolve going into this that there's no way out of it, only through it. That the only way that we will ever be separated is through death do us part. You know, we say that in our wedding vows. We need to, we need to really mean it. We need to literally say, unless there is death, there will be no separation. Now, one of the reasons that we have this standard um, concerning divorce and remarriage is, uh, to be totally honest, because of what Jesus said. I'm not going to be able to read all these verses to you today, but Jesus spoke some strong words about divorce and remarriage. I just present them to you today. For you can take a snapshot with your picture, or with your, take a picture with your phone, and you can look them up and read them later. I mean, these are this is Jesus' standards. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't invent something to where I said, okay, we need to start you know, being hard on people and let's make it difficult. Um, Jesus, Jesus had some things to say about this. Now, the truth is, the tragedy is that most divorces, they don't really need to happen. They don't really have to happen. Um, I read something about Focus on the Family. I meant to have it for the screen, uh, but I, f I forgot to put it on the screen. But here's something, uh, here's something that was said by Focus on the Family, and this is a quote. Most marriages that end in divorce have average levels of happiness and conflict. In other words, they're not that bad. They're not so, they're, they're not so deeply troubled that they're irreversibly broken. And that's, that's, that's pretty sad for focus on the family to say uh, concerning what they probably deal with a lot of Christian marriages. Now, you ha listen, you have to have not just a relational resolve, you have to have a spiritual resolve in order to stay married and a strong resolve. Listen, if you don't believe me, then just ask my wife. She'll tell you how hard it is to have a spiritual resolve to stay married. Do you know, this past week, I was walking through the house, and uh, she was fumbling through a drawer, a drawer, and she pulled out a paper, and she, she was reading our marriage license. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. And I said, honey, I said, are you, uh, are, are you, are you, you know, thinking about fond memories? She said, no, I was looking for an expiration date. And so I showed her some of these Bible verses, and it just made her break down and cry. And she said, you mean I'm sorry? I've already served 16 years of a life sentence? 
I'm like, I'm sorry, it feels like, you know, prison. And here's the truth, with, with Kelly and I, like, Kelly has never brought up divorce, but murders come up a couple of times, you know. I don't know that she has as strong of a conviction about do not murder as, you know, uh, as, as the whole divorce thing. So, I mean, I have to be careful because if I die, then she's free, right? So, you know, i got to be careful. And I asked her, I said, honey, I said, I said, what is, it that is, what is it that is so hard about being married to me? And she said, well, you know, you kind of like a lawnmower. She said, you're hard to get started, you emit foul odors, and you won't work half the time. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I can't argue uh, with some of that. No, seriously, so what, are some, uh, what, are some, what are some biblical grounds for divorce? We talk about that a lot. Of time. What, are some, what are some biblical grounds for divorce and or remarriage. You only see three in Scripture. You only see three, okay? Uh, the death of a spouse, no, don't pray that for this person that you don't like that you live in the same house with. Don't do that. Don't pray, Lord, I, I won't divorce them, but would you please just kill them? Just take them away so I can get out of this bondage. Don't pray that. But uh, that is Romans 7 and lots of other places uh, talk about how divorce is allowed because of that. Number two, um, an unbelieving spouse abandons a Christian spouse. We, we see this as an example that is given in 1 Corinthians 7.15. Not the Christian saying, I got saved and now because you're not saved, I don't want to be married to you anymore. No, the person gets saved and the spouse says, you're way too a crazy, much of a crazy radical Christian. I didn't sign up for that. I don't want that. And so the unbeliever leaves you. That, that, is, that is given as a reason. And then number three, uh, there's cheating that uh, that is involved, you know, uh, you know that that type of uh, that type of uh, uh, of adultery. You know, Jesus uh, at one point, Jesus' disciples in Matthew 19. You look it up at some point. In Matthew 19, they came up to Jesus whenever he gave his, and these were Jesus's standards. That I mean, he talked about this in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. It's called the exception clause. Um, and again, you can study that and look that up. But his disciples complained to Jesus. They said. Man, that is a really, I'm just going to put this in, in, in just my vernacular. I said, that's a really high standard. And Jesus said, well, just stay celibate your whole life and don't get married. I mean, that's basically what he said. He said, if this is too high of a standard that you feel like that you can't live up to it, then just don't get married and, and stay, stay celibate. Now, now, Jesus is more articulate than me, and he went on to talk about eunuchs. He said some have been made eunuchs um, you know, by man, others have made themselves eunuchs, and he said, but some have become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. It's basically Jesus saying, either stay celibate or get married and stay committed and faithful your whole life. Now, some people say, okay, now, what, 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 what about abuse? That's always a big one that kind of comes up. Uh, listen, if, if your spouse physically abuses you, you need to have them arrested. And you need to move your, remove yourself from the situation. I find that some don't want to do this, um, but you, you, if, if, you are physically, if, you, if someone physically abuses you, that's a crime, and you, you, should, ha you should have them arrested. Um, and you should put some separation between you and that person. And then... You should pray that the Lord would do a miracle in your marriage that would lead to reconciliation. And we also have to be real careful when we talk about abuse because I hear people say things like, well, my spouse abused me. I'm like, oh, did, did they, they punch you, throw you downstairs? Oh, no, they emotionally abused me. 
okay? Uh, and then I've heard others say, well, they spiritually abused me. And I kind of scratch my head and I think, man, if, if we go down that road, if we're not careful, everything could be construed as abuse. And so basically what we get into at that point is some common unbiblical grounds for divorce. And here's, here's the cultural standards, okay? Uh, I'm in emotional pain. I've been treated badly. I have, I'm, I'm unhappy. Uh, there's a loss of love. Listen, I don't know about you, but when my truck runs out of gas, I fill it back up. If you have lost love in your marriage, fill it back up. Uh, unmet expectations. Listen, Kelly would divorce me every week if unmet expectations um, were, were uh, grounds for divorce. Unmet needs. I mean, these are things that we often point to. And we hear people say, God wants me to be happy. I can't find that anywhere in here. I can't find it anywhere. What I do find, I do find where God has prepared for our eternal comfort and happiness that will never end in heaven. But then I find where he says that on earth I have to carry a cross. And sometimes it's hard and difficult. So these are, these are I know this is a hard one. This is just, this is just what Scripture says. And this, this next one even, is even more difficult, especially for a lot of men in the room. Jesus says that lust is adultery. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus quotes from, uh, from Exodus chapter 20. He quotes the seventh commandment. And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He says, but I say to you, and I notice, I notice that he's talking, about, talking to the men here. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, Jesus says that that's adultery in the heart. It starts with a look. You can't control what you see, but you can control what you look at and what you attach your heart to. And Jesus, listen, if there is one part of this that Jesus calls for radical, violent measures, it's this one. And do you know that I find that most people that struggle with this, they keep it hidden, they don't tell anyone? They look at things on their phone that they shouldn't. They have things in their heart that they shouldn't. They have a, a secret life behind closed doors, and they don't tell anybody. Not only do they not tell their spouse, they don't, they don't tell their brothers in Christ. They don't ask for help. But yet Jesus called for the most radical action when it comes to this one. Uh, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He says there's a real danger, a major danger in this. And he, even, he, he mentions hell, not to mean that if you struggle with lust that you're going to hell, but meaning that it just drags you down in such a spiritual pit that it's torturous. And Jesus says you need to, you, you, you need to deal with it. Now, when we talk about these three things, I mean, when we talk about cheating, we talk about divorce and remarriage, we talk about lust, man, these are high standards. These are, these are really, really high standards. And we look at these, and the truth is, if, if, if we went person by person, then all of us have, have in some way been affected by divorce or by lust or by cheating or we know someone that has either it's happened to us personally or either someone that we know and that we care about and that we love maybe even that we live in the same house with has been affected by that and has an effect upon us 
And we look at that standard and we think, man, this is, th- th- these are really high standards. You know, you can't follow God's law without His Spirit. There's no way you're going to follow the seventh commandment or any other commandment unless you have the empowerment of God's Spirit inside of you. And here's the good news. There's hope for the adulterer and for the rest of us who have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, do you think that your sin is any better than someone who maybe has committed this sin? It's not. You know, we often talk about pride and gossip as their their acceptable sins. But you know, they're condemned even more strongly in Scripture than the sin of adultery. Even more strongly. And but we see we, sometimes we would like to justify our own sin. And do you know that though Jesus condemned adultery, he offered forgiveness and restoration to the adulteress. Y'all remember this story in John chapter <coughs> excuse me. John chapter 8, this woman that was caught in adultery, and you had these uppity religious men that had their scrolls of the Old Testament saying, oh, look what the Bible says that we should do to this adulterous woman. She broke one of the Ten Commandments, and the Bible says that she should be stoned, that she should be put to death, and they, 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 they hold up their, their, their legalistic commands in their uppity, prideful, religious way, and they say, what do you think that we should do with her, Jesus? Because they wanted, they wanted to see her condemned, and really what they were trying to do is they were trying to trick Jesus. And I don't know exactly what happened after that and what Jesus was writing and all this stuff, but whatever he knelt down on the ground and wrote on the ground and whatever happened after that, those uppity religious men saw their own sin and they realized how much they deserved to be condemned. And man, they stepped away from that situation quick. And Jesus asked the woman, he said, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Do you know that I I think that if an adulterous person had a conversation with Jesus in the church house, that the, the situation would be similar to this. That churches would be so loving, so kind, so forgiving, they would preach the grace of God so much that the worst fornicator, adulterer, whoever you might possibly would think, would come into the church house and Jesus would look around and say, have none of these people condemned you? And they would look around and say, no, these, none, none, of these, none of these people have condemned me. Because see, Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. And if we're going to have the heart of Jesus towards sinners, we, we, have, we have to hold up God's standards. We will never compromise God's standards. But we also have to show the grace and the love and the compassion and the forgiveness. How about an Old Testament example? The worst documented case of adultery in all of Scripture can be found in the Old Testament. And it was a guy named King David. Again, if you've read your Bible at all, you know the story. David didn't have those hedges around him. And he fell into adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. And, um, you know, there, was, there ended up being a baby involved. And so he tried to cover it up. When he couldn't cover it up because the, the woman's wife was righteous, he couldn't cover it up, so he had him killed. And then he, then he covered that up. He committed adultery. 
He deceived. He lied. He abused his power. He was God's chosen king. He abused his power. He did, he did all of these things. And do you know that the interesting thing to me is that um, God, it's, it's not like God cast David aside. He's called a man after God's own heart. Why is that? Why is it that we have an adulterer in the line of Christ? And when we talk about who, who Jesus' dad was, we say he was the son of David. How is it that such a person could be so restored by God? That's because he was broken over his sin. In Psalm chapter 51, he prayed one of the most beautiful prayers that we see in all of the Bible, of just brokenness before God. And then, and, and what, I, what I want to show you today, and I'll, I'll read some of this to you, is God restored him. And when God restored him, God forgave and restored and purified him completely. And we have in Psalm chapter 32, we have this prayer of release where David, even though he had that sin in his past, he had this prayer before God where his standing before God and his standing before others was restored. All shame was removed. All guilt was removed. Purity was brought back into his life. And look, and, uh, uh, and look, look what he prayed. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is, for, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Look what he did. He said, but then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of our sin. And then he gives us some instruction. And this is some instruction that I'm going to give to you today. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you in just a moment, like I do at the end of every service, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer of restoration and forgiveness. That's what the God's Word says. It says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they will not reach Him. You are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You see how fully David was restored to a relationship with God and how deeply he felt the purity and the forgiveness and the holiness that God wanted for him despite the heinousness of his sin. He was fully restored. You see, brokenness precedes cleanliness. Brokenness precedes cleansing. And everyone regardless of their past, can walk in purity. You see, we acknowledge our sin, we're, we repent, God forgives, and He purifies. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive, but not just to forgive. Not just to forgive. He is more gracious than that. He forgives us our sins and... He will cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. That means your standing with God is put back in place. Look at Isaiah. Some of, some of you are sitting here today. You don't, know how much, you, don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it's been for me. You don't, know the, you don't know the way that I have sinned against my spouse. You don't know my history of relationships. You don't know the things that take place in my life behind closed doors and the things that I've done. Not just in concern with this area, but in every area. You know what God says? God says, hey, look, let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let's, let's reason together. You think your life is wrecked? You think that your sins are like scar. You, you, th- you think you are, 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 are beyond repair. But God says, I can do a work of purity in your life. My power is so much stronger and so much mightier that even though your sin is like crimson, he says they can become like wool. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good to know that it doesn't? Listen, let me tell you something. God does not, I've said this before, and I feel like I just can't say it enough. God does not want you to live with the shame of your sin. That's what man does. Man puts shame on you. That's not what God does. God took all the penalty. He took everything that you deserved, including the shame of your sin, and he laid it on Christ on the cross. He doesn't want you walking around in guilt and shame. He doesn't want you dragging your head thinking, well, I don't deserve good anymore because of what I've done in the past. That is an insult to the sacrifice of Christ. He wants you to be free. He wants you to not just live in purity. He wants you to also live in freedom, just like this prayer that David prayed about God's restoration of life. That's what God wants for you, and maybe that's what some of you need here today. And you only find it through Christ. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You need cleansing today? You can find it through prayer. You can find it through Christ. And so let's do that. Let's bow our heads, and let's close our eyes. And let's pray to the Lord. I don't know what you have that you need to say to God I don't know what kind of confession of sin that you need to offer to God. I don't know what might be in your past that you would say, I have just been carrying this guilt and this shame around so long, I think that the Lord would say He wants you to release that shame today. It doesn't matter how many times you've been divorced. God can still forgive you. It doesn't matter how many times you've committed adultery or cheated. It doesn't matter what kind of bondage you might be in to lust. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ can break that bondage. He can purify you, and He can remove all the guilt and shame. That's what our God does. So why don't you offer prayer to Him right now? And if you're not saved, if you've never, if you've never been born again, call upon the name of the Lord right now. Ask Him to save you. It's so simple.